Code Fun Podcast Network. This podcast is brought to you by our friends at Linode. Whether you're working on a personal project or managing your enterprise's infrastructure, Linode has the pricing, support, and scale you need to take your project to the next level. Get started on Linode today by going to linode.com slash remote ruby. This is Remote Ruby. Have you any remote idea to the meaning of the word? Hello. What's up, Jason? Hello. Welcome, Nick. Before we start our banter, you want to give a quick intro about yourself? Sure. I'm uh, Nick Schwader. I'm a Rubyist, which is why I'm here. Weirdly, as of last week was my fifth anniversary of production merged to a customer's code base for the first time, but it's been about six years since I first hacked at Ruby. I currently work for a little company some may know called Chef. I've very recently transitioned from years of just Rails work, web work, to actually now being pure Ruby OSS maintainer, which is wildly different, but obviously something that I've always found really interesting. And I've always got some side projecty thing that I'm hacking away at. Like, I think we're all the same. If I'd hit the lottery, I'd probably still be writing Ruby in some way. So at the moment, that would be past Ruby's would be the thing that I'd probably hack away at for a few years full time. But my accent, I live in, and I work in the Chef Belfast office in Northern Ireland. Cool. So I'm, I'm a ways away and a few time zones away from you today. So it's the end of my Fridays. I didn't know you lived in Ireland. And so when Chris emailed and was like, hey, I know you're some time zones ahead. I was like, oh, I didn't realize Nick was Irish. And then you st- I could join the Zoom call today. I was like, Nick's not Irish. So it's, uh, <laughs> it's been a pretty big day for me. A lot of emotions. Oh, yeah. I, this happens all the time. And since Chef is a global team and I'm in the Belfast office, but most of the teams in America, they'll just all assume that I'm in like Pittsburgh or something <laughs> or, or, or San Diego. And I'll just be like, oh, yeah, we're here. Because some of the Belfast office people are integrated with people in America as well. So they're like, oh, if he reports the Belfast office, we lives. That's it's fun. I love to distribute it. Well, everyone is at the minute, right? Everybody's remote Ruby for most people. So, yeah. How's everyone? What have y'all been doing? Anything good? Oh, I've been packing. We move on Monday. So, and it's been, it feels like a whole week of vacation ish, <laughs> like not working, but not, not actual vacation. So, been strange. How about you guys? Oof. It's been a blur of a week. Not like for no reason in particular. I don't know. Hmm. I've been pulled a lot of places like mentally at work. So I haven't really been writing a lot of RSpec for my side project. I've decided that I needed to up my test game and then just been stimulus reflexing. Oh yeah. Got to flex on, flex on these stimuluses, dude. <laughs> you know it. <laughs> so did we talk about that on the podcast, the form stuff? That you've been working on? No, I'll kind of just mention it real quick. So we were we're building one of our pages in our what we call our CMS, our Podia backend uh, in Reflex, and basically what I'm working on is one big form, but that has a lot of like little interactivity with other parts of the form, and you know, like I have a lot of has many relationships on the form, and I kind of, I don't know, I kind of got to a point where I didn't know a good way to manage it because like the form also has to auto save. 
And so I was like, it'd be cool if every time like I auto saved, I just submitted the whole form to reflex and it tried to persist it, ran validations and re-rendered. But there wasn't really a good way to do that. So like I hacked in a way to like always serialize a form and send it over. And in the reflex side, I just took it as a hash and made it uh, strong parameters essentially. And long, long story short, yeah, that ended up getting into reflex. So it's been, I don't know, it's been really cool. A, because I never contributed to open source. So it was nice to actually like feel like I was doing something productive. And it was nice because it, it cut down. So for this form, I have, it's a pretty big form. I have a lot of nested fields. And I don't think I have more than like 50 lines of JavaScript right now. So that includes like on a has many that accepts nested attributes, you can keep clicking add to like add another field to the page. And there's no JavaScript to do that. It's just all based on params. It's really cool. That's pretty neat. Yeah, when you were showing me that, I was like, this seems like a pretty obvious thing that like stimulus reflex needs, especially since like that was the big interesting thing that Nate was telling us about the the complex campaign form on CodeFund. And then you guys are using it for a form as well. And it seems like a natural fit, especially because like the full re-rendering makes sense when you don't need to broadcast that to other people. And, you know, that's the perfect use case there. And you get validations and all that good stuff. Yeah. It actually was also kind of born out of constraints too. Because like Nate's example that he showed us he serializes essentially like his object and stores it in Redis and then like reinstantiates with that object from Redis. That wasn't an option for us because our Redis like rotates so much and we have people that will leave a page open for weeks at a time. So the other thing too is we didn't have access to the session because we're still using cookie stores like OGs. And we want to switch, but that is an option right now for us. And Reflex only supports like server-side session stores like or like a database or something like that. So yeah, that's how we ended up kind of doing that. But it's been really nice. I'm having more fun programming right now. I've had a long time. And a large part of that is Reflex. Well, I am really glad to hear that because I don't know... You said this was your first open source contribution? Well, it's my first contribution to something that I didn't help start. Yeah, well, you forgot the documentation, bro. <laughs> yeah, well... <laughs> so, I, I, see, I see two paths forward. Either A, you explain to me how this works so I can get rid of all that janky stuff that we were doing, which I'm actually really pissed off you didn't come sooner and... <laughs> Save me from that whole situation, which worked, but in a really dirty way. Well, it seemed nice at the time because I had no clue that you were sitting on like a a really great solution. Or you're gonna have to you have to beef up that docs the docs dude because I need to know how to do this. Yeah, I should do a docs PR that or just remove the feature from the library. That's probably the easier thing. So you'd rather do both of those <laughs> than explain. <laughs> okay. No, we can talk. We can we can walk through it. I can show you what we're doing at Podia sometime. So, 
But enough about me and reflexing. Let's let's talk past rubies. I think Chris said he was interested to hear a little more about that too. So Nick, you mind just kind of telling us what that project is and Oh yeah, I would definitely love talking about it. So past rubies, just as a disclaimer for anyone who's Googling, it's been on a hiatus since Christmas, but it's actually re-upping in the next month, which so it's a great time to talk about it better than ever. The reason for that is just after Christmas, my wife and I moved from England to Northern Ireland and I changed jobs and lockdown happened and we're locked down with the in-laws. And it's just, there's been too many things at once to unfortunately go beyond just surviving and, and working at the moment, right? So I'm sure everybody's had their own experiences with that. But past rubies, here's the background. You know, when I was a kid, my first job was for the local newspaper doing a historical column every week called Back in the Day, where I would go into the local county archives and I would do a write-up what was happening this week in Mineral County, where I grew up 40, 25, and 10 years ago that week. And it's a really tiny county, like 3,000 people. So like you'd have people who you knew's basketball scores from 1960 some, right? So I always really enjoyed this digging into history of stuff that I care about because I cared about my community. And that never really left me in other ways. So one day I was doing a deep dive, which I do anyway, about every few months on why the lucky stuff. I mean, it's years and years of writing and code and projects that just like balloons and hobics and like all these things that most people put loops of phone wouldn't know about and, and running this old code. And I just thought, man, you know, there's so much that's been written and blogged about and released and happened in Ruby since before me. You know, like I started in 2014. There's eras of Ruby that I've missed out on. I would love to do something like that just for, you know, what happened in Ruby this week in the in different years. So the first thing I did was write a simple Ruby resource for myself that's private that I can put um, resources in when I find them. And it will have an adapter set up. I can I could go through the code some other time. But basically what I'd do is one time I'd write the code that could interact with this resource, say a blog that was written for 10 years. And then when I run the script, it'd give me every blog post that had come out in a tab for this week in history. So like 2008, 9, 10, 11, 12 this week. And then I just went hunting resources. And so it was like, Probably the first things that I should hunt for to tell me what was happening in Ruby aren't actual individual blogs, but aggregators, people who are like the historians of their time. You know, like we look on ancient scripts now. And I actually have a few of my big ones that I use that I'll read out here for you right now. So the first one I did, which y'all will know is Ruby Weekly. It's been around for eight years. And from 2012 to 2020, if you want to know what was happening in Ruby, Ruby Weekly is basically where that knowledge would be stored. The other one that Peter Cooper did, he had one prior from 2006 to 2014, which is Ruby Inside, which is very similar. So that's a resource that we pull from. And by the way, if you don't read Ruby Weekly, if you're listening, definitely subscribe. But then the one that's one of my favorites and my podcaster friends here may remember this, uh, Ruby 5 podcast. So that was on from 2009 to 2016 and it had 645 episodes because it came and it was perfect for chronicling history because it came out twice a week and it was five minutes long and it was just literally about things that had been published, talked about, released. Because this is how you can find like a gist from like six years ago that all the famous Ruby people talked on that you, you know, can't find anymore. 
And then the final two that have really been helpful for me, Why the Lucky Stiff blogged very extensively and with great theatrics about what was happening in Ruby. This is before Twitter. This was before, you know, you had to, people were going in 2004, five and six, you had to go to someone's blog, know that it existed, type it in, go to the article, and then you'd see all the same faces in the comments. And that's where they'd have the discussion, not on Twitter. And you'd see, uh, he did it over two blogs over five years. And then finally, DHH actually started writing in 2001. And there's, there's resources on that. I could, I could spend another hour and a half going through resources I found, but I started with these. And then there's this crazy web of you can find what everybody was reading or linking into back then. And then you just go into that. And I'm slowly adding to those resources, you know, now that I've got the really, really data heavy ones. Add to that. So on writing it, literally what I do is I run this script and I have hundreds of things open up and I just read through them and figure out what are things that we don't remember, talks that happened, blogs happened, are like some of the things I found, you know, why the lucky stiff and Aaron Patterson got into it. Like, and it was a thing for a while and it wasn't super nice. And I had no idea because they're like two of the most lovely people that I know in the Ruby community, but there were some shots fired with accusations that wise Nokogiri was really slow. But that was, by the way, I'm not reigniting beef. I'm just saying these are interesting little nuggets like that you find or, you know, Ruby on Bells was really fun when I found that uh, six, seven years old, maybe 10 years old. Rails getting rewritten at Google in 2009. It's just, anyway, I think y'all can probably appreciate this is a very selfish project because I love reading it. It just gives me an excuse to try and distill it into a newsletter kind of format with four or five links. Because I, I do feel that there's that pre-2009 period of Ruby where it was just so magical. Then there's kind of like 2009 to 2014 where it was becoming industrial and big and you can make money. And then I think post-2014, it's just like a mature, established kind of... The culture's kind of been solid since then. But there's that... All those old zany blog posts were just crazy. So anyway, Past Rubies was my excuse to just tap into that and uh, have a lot of fun. So there's my Past Rubies rant. And it's so cool because I've often... I think I joined Rails in 2010, I think. I was working for a professor and they had a Rails app or several of them. So I had missed like why and all of that. You know, and that was like you hear mentioned him by months. I know it's crazy. So it was interesting. Like everybody mentioned him and whatever, and I was like, "Who is this guy?" And I can't find him anymore. And it was it was a strange time, but things have like I think industrialized is a good way of describing it because things really got like a lot different, and it was a different era. It felt like, but I always felt like there was some some magicalness that I missed from the early days that I didn't get an experience because I wasn't there, which is kind of interesting. But I, I know, Jason, we've talked about, you know, the the merge of Rails and Merb together is like something I wish I knew a lot more about. And I think Yehuda posted a, a blog post talking about, you know, like rather than fighting, just come to the table and have a conversation with the Rails core team and you know, we'll work out our differences and see what we can do. And it's a fascinating article that he posted recently about that. I would so, be curious to know how many like people don't even know about the Merb Rails. Yeah. Because it wasn't really until like, it may have been, I got in 2012, it wasn't like 2016, 2017. I even knew that 
there were there was another like framework that merged into Rails. Yeah, and I don't remember what like was that Rails version two or three or whatever. I guess it wasn't it was three. three. Was it, it was three? three? Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah and that's strange because I learned Rails two point three originally, and then Rails three came out, and there were some things like rather than having a gem file, you had to do config.gem in your application.rb and define your gems inside there. And those little things were changing the asset pipeline. Prototype JS was the thing before they switched to jQuery. And, you know, there was a lot of different things back then. And I hadn't done enough of Rails before that. So I don't really know the difference when, when Merb got merged in. But I would love to know, like, you know, which pieces came from Merb and which were Rails things. I've thought about cloning the oldest version of Rails on Ruby Gems and creating a new app with it and seeing how, how it goes. That would rule. Yeah, I'll have to do a screencast on that. I think that would be a lot of fun. And then while you're doing that, I'd love if you ever want to look at old stuff. So why did Markaby, which I think that was why we did it originally, which was a markup, HTML markup in Ruby and camping, which was a web framework in Ruby. And I, I definitely love taking the whole... There's so much of it that still works relatively well. Uh, Bloopsophone still works. That's a music generator in Ruby. But I definitely hear you for like, what can you still compile and, and build stuff in? And what was different? You know, like that's why Obi Fernandez's Rails 3 way. That's why I bought a used copy of that because it's fun seeing how things used to be written and not not as much has changed as you'd actually think, you know. So yeah, yeah, that's the interesting thing, and I think why the like looking at the historical stuff in Ruby and Rails and all that is like these are all things that evolved over time, and people learn different ways of you know managing your dependencies in a gem file is a lot easier, and you know kind of is separate from your framework and stuff. You know, and that that tool gets introduced and adopted by everybody, and you can see it like spread over time. And it's it's fascinating to see that stuff, and then it can give you ideas on like, yeah, we used to do things this way, but now we have another idea, and you know that that spreads pretty fast, and might give you other ideas on things that maybe need improvement that you hadn't even thought of before. Definitely, and one of the things I've found that the theme of Ruby then versus Ruby now is just the ability to share code, deploy applications, collaborate has gotten lint. Everything's gotten so much more developer friendly. You know, I mean, I started out having Heroku create, you know, so part, part of the reason I'm glad I'm with Chef is because I think one of my biggest blind spots was deployment in DevOps. And guess what? It's a DevOps company. So but, but it used to be such a pain, people, you know, trying to get their servers up and running and host. And I mean, you remember Ruby Forge and all these different things. And it's just a real joy to, to look through it because it's, it's, you know, for us, 2005 is ancient history. But there's, it's not just from the code. I think the one thing I really enjoy is you see these conferences that had everyone at it, like DHA. I think you and I may have talked about this. When, because I think the last time I talked to you, Chris, there's somebody who posted RailsConf, what, or one of the OSS comps, 06 or 07. There's one that had, you can find this online Flickr pictures of like Y and DHH side by side and Y is playing a song and making fun of DHH. 
Yeah, I remember. Like, I remember yeah. seeing a tweet of a schedule or something for that, and it was like, yeah, pretty pretty crazy. And yeah, I so speaking of Heroku in 2010 or whatever, it was either 2010 or 2011, early 2011. Blake Miserani came out from Heroku and went to our university and talked to the computer science club and showed us how to deploy with Heroku like way back when in the early days. And it's like, you know, it's pretty crazy to think that like that was something he he did to a group of like 10 students way back when. Like they would never do that now. There's no no need to. But it's kind of it's kind of amazing to think back on those days. And I remember I went out to Ruby Midwest was in Kansas City and it was pretty small, maybe like 80 people, something like that, maybe less. And Chris Wanstrath from GitHub gave the opening keynote or whatever. And yeah, there was, there was probably other big Rubyists there that I didn't even know because that was right when I was getting into it and I had no idea what was who was who and anything. I didn't even really know Ruby at all, but my friend was getting me into it and <laughs> talked me into to driving out there and going to it. So it, I, yeah, knowing who was there would probably be fascinating to me these days. <laughs> wow. And uh, the one thing I'll say, and I think we're on the last days of it, is if you're, this is just an aside that I wanted to mention. If you're a huge fan of Ruby history and you're on lockdown, I think we're still in time for a few more days uh, from when this probably will come out. But Brighton Ruby's alternative conference, so they're doing a remote conference this year, is going to be issuing a nice uh, hard copy of Wise Pony Guide to Ruby, which we, many of us may have enjoyed in the early days. I've in fact shared it with non-Rubyist friends who thoroughly enjoyed just the read. But of course, I think it was always in a PDF because it was a free and open thing. So it's actually finally being made into a hard copy. So yeah. Thanks for reminding me about that. I meant to sign up and then didn't have something on me or something happened and I couldn't and then I forgot, but I've got to do that right now. <laughs> so do I. I actually will be doing it today. So yeah, I was pretty excited. This is just an aside. I dropped it in chat, but he's hosting it on the platform for the company I work for, Podia the conference. So I was pretty excited to see that. Wow. So stimulus reflex, making that entrance. Sure. (laughs) (laughs) It's funny to hear y'all talk about this because just like for context, when I came into Ruby and Rails, Chris is like the celebrity, (laughs) which is, uh, it's now that like, yeah, I know. I've known you for like a little bit now, but when I first started out, like you were, you and still are like I'm trying to think of a clean word, but the shiz. <laughs> like I like even I was nervous to even like talk to you at Railscom, funny enough. Because I was like, oh man, he's like this big Ruby celebrity, like yada yada yada, you know, nervous thoughts. But I've I've heard some of the I've heard some of the words y'all have mentioned before, but never dug in. Because it was like, <laughs> why why bother? I got all this jQuery stuff to figure out anyway. <laughs> It's hilarious. Yeah, I remember the first Southeast Ruby. I hadn't really been to many Ruby conferences for a while. And then Jason put on Southeast Ruby. And it was like, I don't know, a third of the people there at least were like, hey, I watch your screencasts. And I was like, this is, this is weird. 
Like I just sit in my basement and record videos all day. So like, I don't assume anyone watches them. So it was, it was a strange moment, but it's so cool to see all of that. And then like, there's those generations too of like, I learned everything. I watched every single video of, of Railscast like 10 times oh, yeah. when That's I was, right. when I was starting out and that was like really the the thing like he had stopped doing that for like a year and a half or something. And I was in a, in a place where I was like, I don't want to work for anyone anymore. I want to try and make a, you know, a product or something. And I started doing courses, but I don't know how to do marketing. And I was like, well, people miss Railscast and I really miss Railscast. So maybe I'll try doing something similar. And here we are. It's pretty nuts. But like, those are, those are also fascinating things of like, without those kind of contributions from people in the community, it would be so much harder for more people to get into rails or whatever, like those tutorials, videos, podcasts, you know, newsletters, all of that stuff makes such a big difference on how easy it is to get into a language or a framework or whatever. Quite a, quite an amazing thing to be part of that. But like, you know, I, it's, you're just like a, you can do your piece, but then we need the, we need everything else too. You know, the newsletters like, like Ruby weekly, I've been subscribed to that for ages and you get to know what things are happening all the time and keep your, you know, keep your eye on what's changing and what new things you need to learn and whatever. And it's like a critical piece of a, a good community. That's that's super cool, by the way, Chris. I didn't know that you were that there wasn't an overlap. Like I knew and I didn't mention that. That is another core resource. I think it's still there and Railscasts are a part of history. You really get to see how things were differently done in early, early days, early much earlier days of Rails to this day. I I'll still go on some of them. But a lot of times I'm like, oh wait, we don't write it that way anymore. But that's so great that I didn't know there was a connection that you basically well, they say like if you know the problem and the need already, you can make the solution for yourself, and then that's what you give to others. Like in a very tiny bit, I wish there was someone talking about the history of Ruby. No one was, so that's why I start getting into that. I mean, that's one thousandth the size, but you wanted the screencasts back, and you made them come back, and it's been going a lot even longer now, I, I guess, than Railscasts. Yeah, I'm, I think he's. We're maybe around the same. Time. I know he's got like more screencasts than than I've done so far, but I think he did that for six or seven years or something, you know. And it's kind of strange to to think about like Ryan and why both kind of disappeared after they did their run in the community, and like we lost track of them. But I, I hopefully won't be doing that, doing my disappearing act soon. <laughs> I will say I have uh, poured many a night and I won't talk about why anymore after this. You can tell I have a why problem because the mythos is is ridiculous and the disappearance and everything around it. And I, I have this yearning like I wish because he was at conferences and spoke to people and interacting for so long. Like I wish I could meet him. But I, I understand that he's now like there's a with the mythos. He doesn't exist. He belongs to the community. The person who was why if you went up and accosted him, that'd be the worst thing you could possibly do. Right. But for the listeners who hadn't heard of this, and this is the last piece of history, I'll say, I think four years to the day, possibly, of his disappearance. So 
Chris, you would have been around for this. I would have just missed it. It was 2013. He released a, a goodbye, which was a 100-page document that was on a print loop spool that came from his website that he owned. And you had to hook your printer up to it on the day and it would print the 100 pages. And it's available on a PDF now. It's called Closure. And Steve Klavnik gave a talk about it, kind of about what that day was like, because a lot of weird things happened on one day. All these weird YouTube things started popping up that went away that were kind of hinting at it. There's little few things that came alive, then it died and it's been gone. But and at the end of the talk, you even choke up a little bit as he kind of uh, talks about how how the document wraps up. But if you if you have a few hours and you can under and you enjoy why that was a very beautiful document. So that's the last I'll say on that bit of history that was my favorite part. So that is really cool. Yeah, I kind of remember that happening, but I also kind of remember being like, I don't really know who this guy is, and you know, like it was still a little weird for me when that stuff happened. But my main question is, was he actually Jack Black? <laughs> Could have been all on. <laughs> they look very similar, but have you ever seen him in the same place? No. There you go. There's yeah. your answer. <laughs> you know who I also haven't seen in the same place? Jason and Batman. Beginning to put the puzzle together. I too have never seen us in the same place. <laughs> <laughs> It's funny you bring up uh, Railscast. I watched a Railscast video this morning. So, which one? The one on polymorphism. <laughs> Still Dude. completely relevant. Yeah. Like, there's like tiny little things you need to tweak, but like so good. Yeah, that's a funny thing. There's, there's like, you know, the Railscast that were about building something like that, the core thing of Rails, sortable links and tables and stuff. If you did those from scratch, they never get outdated, you know? And then those are still relevant today, which is fascinating. And then some of them are like a gem or whatever that, you know, got outdated in version two or whatever. And those are, those are not useful anymore, but they're like, this is how we used to do things and we might do it differently now. But it, it's really cool to see this, that some of those are like, 10 years later, still relevant, still basically the same thing. And it works just as well now as it did then. Yeah. Yeah. I'd rather convert 10-year-old Ruby to now Ruby than convert a jQuery plugin that was written two years ago into ES6. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. Don't get us started on all that. At least you're not porting a prototype JS to jQuery to you know, stimulus or whatever now. That's uh, not a fun process. I don't even know what prototype is, so yeah, take it was, for it. Yeah, it was like built into Rails way back when, like, you know, pre, what was it, like Rails 3.1 or 3.2 that added jQuery as the default. And uh, man, I don't even remember. There was, there was a time before like the, you know, jQuery UJS library too. That's kind of fascinating. You wouldn't have had the remotest true forms or any of that stuff back in the day. That's crazy to think about. Yeah, I, <laughs> I can't even imagine. I'm over here trying to write some TypeScript, bro. Like you're talking about 20-year-old JavaScript, 10-year-old, whatever, same thing. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we'll, we'll have to like 
rebuild Jumpstart in Rails 0.8 or something, whatever the oldest one that's out. <laughs> I worked with a Rails 2.02 app at my last job. It was like legacy, legacy, legacy. Uh, like my our job was to basically rewrite that app in a newer version of Rails. Like we weren't even trying to upgrade it. And Active Record was like, given what I know about Active Record in 20, when, when was this? Like 2015 versus what Active Record was then, it was very painful to use. There was like one method, like one or two methods for like doing finds and you like pass just a bunch of options to it. It was tough. Oh yeah, I kind of remember that. Man, there was like so many things. Like they introduced the or thing in the active record, like not that many years ago. And I remember that being a big deal because we always had to like write it manually or whatever. And you couldn't use your your scopes. Yeah. If I remember correctly, like anything I wanted to do, like it wasn't like model.all. It was like model.find symbol all. Oh, yeah. So. Oh gosh. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting to see those like, cause there's probably a lot of the complexity that changed over time because they were like, well, you know, we'll build a simple version of it. And then they realized like, nah, we should actually have separate methods for this. That's more descriptive and, you know, is, is less exceptions for the, you know, calling checking to see if the symbol matches all or if it's a number for the ID and all those things. I'm sure that was quickly found out like, oh, this works, but it's also way harder to maintain. And it's probably interesting too, to think about all the people who are on the Rails core team that have come and gone and, you know, been part of the, the maintainers for however many years. I'm sure that'd be interesting to see all that. Yeah, and I can only help but think that that API back then was probably mind-boggling. It's just funny how things progress to where like that was painful to me because I had seen a better API that they had written. So Right, yeah, like at the time you're like, oh, great, this is how you do it. And you're like, this is easy because comparing this to PHP or whatever you're doing with WordPress and other things before, those were probably pretty terrible back then. And you're like, wow, this rail stuff is way simpler than I thought. <laughs> yeah, definitely more simple than writing. Well, I was never at that era where it's just writing lots of your own SQL and stuff, right? Like you, I always had the comforting arms of, of active, active record. Every venture outside of the ORM land uh, still is a little scary for me, but yeah. Yeah, yeah, I think that's, that's probably something that we'll, we will see change over time is that's really been a lot of people's complaints with Rails. Like there's no guidance on how to break out of Rails when you need to do more complex stuff. And concerns and things are, are leading in that direction a bit, but not a, not a huge amount. So I would imagine that, you know, in five years, we'll see something that's like, yeah, here's, here's the Rails way of handling these things. And we'll look at it and be like, well, of course, but it'll be like, wow, when we, when we see it. So yeah, it's, it's pretty fascinating. I love all this stuff because there's, there's so much stuff you can learn from the old things. 
like just the decisions and mindset of how things were. Like people are talking about with, you know, the JavaScript frameworks these days, like they're all like, yeah, we've done this before and in Java and other building desktop apps and stuff. And it's like sort of reinventing the wheel or like applying old practices in new ways in, in JavaScript in the browser. And so, you know, there's probably so many people like us who we may not have done those older approaches and then you know, they seem novel and new to us, but it's like, yeah, recycling these ideas because they're, they're still useful. It's kind of fascinating. Chris, uh, you've thrown shade at concerns twice today, I'm going to point out. And I happen to really like concerns. <laughs> Dude, why would they be concerns if they weren't something you need oh to be my concerned God. about? I saw it coming from a mile away and <laughs> I, uh, I have nothing I, to say to that. I think concerns are pretty fantastic because you can, you know, kind of encapsulate like the whole concept in one module. If have you guys ever seen the Gilded Rose Kata? It's like a little programming challenge. So the 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 thing is like you have these different what is it cheeses or whatever that like some cheese gets better or or foods, some cheese gets better with age and, you know, quality goes down with other things over time and, and so on. And what's his name? James Gray the second. Is that right? Yeah. He's got a solution in Ruby on GitHub somewhere that used modules and includes them dynamically to solve it. And it was the most elegant thing I had seen in in Ruby in a very long time. And I was like, wow, this is awesome. And then concerns came out in Rails. And I was like, this is the same solution. Like this is perfect. I'll have to find the link to his his solution on it because I think it's super duper fun to go solve that problem yourself. Go go do it without looking at his solution. You're gonna start doing your if statements and whatever else and inheritance and things. And he doesn't do that. He uses modules and includes them. And his solution turned out to be like 10 times way more cleaner than than mine was. And I was like, whoo, this is interesting. And yeah, so I, I joke about concerns, but I think they're a similar concept. It is. It can be confusing if they're not named well, but that is how it goes. I had been working in Rails like a year and a half and had never touched code inside of a concern until I met Nate Hopkins. And now I'm, I'm not going back. I'm, I'm in. I'm sold. Everything in CodeFun that's in our concern folder, I'm pretty sure, ends in A-B-L-E. And I'll never forget the look of joy on Nate's face when he finally figured out like the, the exact perfect word for this thing that I was like, Nate, that's not a word. He's like, yeah, but that's the joy of it. We get to create our own word now. <laughs> but it surprisingly makes total sense. Like if you look at it now, I, I like concerns. I ain't going back to interactors. You can't make me. <laughs> I, I do like, I like both. Like I, I remember on some projects I have used interactors, but almost exclusively for, you know, the interactor gem. I've used it for chat bots so I can chain things in a line. But I, I have enjoyed concerns as well. The Rails-y concerns, you know, and controllers and models as buckets to throw things. 
because code has to go somewhere. And when you keep writing it, it gets, it gets wild. But I'll say to your point, Chris, like it is really fun when you get to see people that you admire or tackle tricky problems that you haven't track tackled yet, or that you have tackled. Honestly, I very recently, so where I started, uh, my project is open source. So all sorts of people have worked on it. It's called InSpec. Just the quick one-liner on it is uh, it's compliance as code. So an area of tech I wasn't very familiar with before this is there's a lot of compliance and security audits. So there's uh, standards where you might have a thousand page uh, PDF document um, from CIS or something that literally says, this is the security thing. You have to run this in the terminal on this operating system and have this result to pass. Uh, and then people would have to go through these and manually do it and audit it. Whereas we allow you to write essentially Ruby code that's RSpec-like, where you could do it on thousands of instances with thousands of tests and do all your reporting automatically. So uh, very, very interesting stuff. But I bring that up because those are tricky problems that might involve metaprogramming or, or tricky things, especially when we're writing our own tests for our own stuff that are tests off of RSpec in a way. But one of the prior maintainers was Ryan Davis on this project that I worked on who you may be familiar, has started all the things. Actually, I should talk to Ryan because Ryan's history is, he would know, like his blog posts are a big resource since like 2002 or three in Seattle, but most famous possibly for being the owner of Minitest, but so many other things, Flog and Flay. And, but it's cool seeing how he approached some of these problems that I'm now working through. And he, he always had flair, by the way. His, his, like, his commits and his way would be a bit spicier than the average developer. Funny you bring that up because I've been doing like Chris's tutorials basically to learn how to write Rails at an internship. And I was able to go to RailsConf because I volunteered and they gave me a free ticket. And I was doing volunteer duty and I was standing outside of the speaker room, which was like for someone just learning Rails, like, you know, googly eyes, just like seeing who was in there. I would be more now knowing who they all are, but I'll never forget Ryan Davis. He ran out of the room and he walked up to Evan Phoenix and he was like explaining to him that Ryan has authored the most gems in the Ruby ecosystem. Like, I think he said like a thousand or something, like some crazy number. And I'll never forget that because as soon as he like, they had that interaction like right in front of me. And then Ryan like went back into the speaker room and then I immediately jumped on my phone. I'm like, all right, who is this guy? Who is this guy? That's definitely. One of the beauties is he could look and see like everything he's done because since it's all open source, you know, we're very lucky to have that. Whereas all the best bits really are all things that we can look at and, and play with. And that's right. You are right. I, I, I didn't want to confirm it, but I thought he had written an insane, unbelievable number of gems. And if you look at his website, he's updating them all the time. Yeah. They're, not like, they're not like my gems, which die, you know, like which work for about a year and then I forget about them and they have like four stars and then go away. But yeah, Andrew Kane, pretty, pretty good hustlers in the Ruby community. Oh, that's right. I forgot about. Did Andrew Kane do search kick with yep. Elasticsearch? Yep. Okay. Yep. And countless other. Lately, he's been on a kick of doing machine learning stuff in Ruby, which has been particularly bad for a long time. So, you know, everybody was like, well, if you're going to do any of that stuff, use Python or some other language. And, the assumption was Ruby was bad for it or whatever. And it's really awesome to see that he's putting a ton of time into that. But yeah, his 
I think he worked at Instacart and I imagine that inspired a lot of the the projects because they seem very, and he has some really good sort of guides too that are like production rails, security and other things that are like, just here's all your, your big long checklist of things to think about for production or whatever. And they're awesome. And he does the strong migrations gem too, which has been particularly good to catch some some bad migrations you might accidentally write that also are aware of the Postgres version you're using, which is also awesome because some of them don't matter in newer versions of Postgres and it'll complain only in the older ones, which is sweet. So yeah, those two guys are crazy. <laughs> That's so cool. Like I've always had a lot of respect for our OSS maintainers and owners. I will obviously say, and I guess something to mention for for today is, you know, I did make the transition from web dev rails world full stack, which I still do. I'll never stop doing, but that's more of a nights and weekends thing now. But now I'm fully like OSS maintainer, just Ruby, which as someone who didn't particularly enjoy like the HTML, JavaScript, CSS part of my day, like I do it and learn it, but that wasn't the most fun part. I, I do enjoy being fully Ruby, but Oh my goodness. There is, it's almost like a whole other part of the stack, which is the community relations maintenance part, which is so important. You have to deal with, and I, and I didn't think about it when I was consuming everything, but if you know someone in the open world writes a really, I don't want to say stupid because that's a really harsh word, but a really difficult issue or PR for Rails course, someone will have to read it and deal with it and be very polite and be kind and be grateful for the PR of the issue. Even if it takes up three hours of their day to try and figure out what you're saying or, or what you're trying to get done. And, you know, that is myself and my team, like we actually have to dedicate part of our day and mental space to not just reading what comes in from the world and approving or reviewing or handling it, but also letting that conduct our workflow because something might come in where, oh, this is actually a really, really good PR, but it has two things wrong with it. I'm going to have to spend a couple of days working with this person to get it to work, right? And so many people, I mean, I'm, this is my job, but so many of these people are not being paid anything to do this. So it, it definitely, in the last two months since I started doing this, have gotten a tremendous expect, amount of respect for open source maintainers and letting them... Because when you, when you open source something, you're basically giving the world access to your headspace. Um, whereas everything I worked in prior, the only people who could bug me were like my boss and coworkers and uh, you know customers and stuff. But it, literally, someone you've never heard of might come in with a critical big problem, and you'll have to you know we promise turnarounds, and it is important to us, you know, at Chef generally, but also at our team to you know now that I am in that role, like I really want to make sure everyone has a positive experience if they try and participate in the repository. You know, because sometimes we've all filed issues that sit there for four years and never get responded to or ignored or, or maybe not treated very nicely, maybe closed with kind of a harsh comment saying, this is the wrong place or you don't know what you're talking about. So we try and be kind of the attitude that we enjoy as Rubyists for everyone. So it's, it's a very, very different world. So people like Ryan and, and the other individual who I just named just, but, but the fact that they're doing so many of these. It takes a different kind of person. One one repo is enough for me. That is that is all I can handle, and it's literally my job. So I really respect those folks. Yeah, I've been doing full time open source. I mean, it is also my job, but I've been doing full time open source for like eight eight months, I guess, at this point. And it is it's a it's an interesting thing because 
you know, I think prior to it, like my heroes were the ones who were in there adding the cool feature, like DHH swoops in and he adds this like super slick feature and 200 lines of code and everyone goes crazy. But like the real work in my mind of open source is are those people who are answering those issues, helping beginners, trying to build the community, trying to help keep the community safe. And it's, it's so much work. It's emotionally draining like whenever I have to do it. And I don't, we don't have as much interaction on at code fun with outside people. We do sometimes, but whenever it's, it's emotionally draining, especially as I've gotten more into open source on my side projects and stuff like that. It's just a different kind of like mental exercise and not everyone is cut out for it. And that's why it is crazy to think that there are all these people doing it on their weekends, like in their spare time, not getting paid for it. And just so quick side plug, if you want to get paid for it, you should check out CodeFund because we can maybe help help you out there. Bling, bling. Yeah, I, I'm in the same boat and I get paid for it too. But it is, uh, it is a different headspace you have to be in to... to you're, you're effectively doing like customer support all day. You know, if it's open source, it's uh, techni- very technical customer support effectively. And like people like uh, Joel Hawksley doing view component do a killer job of it. And it's like just something that impresses me so much uh, when they can maintain something that well and keep it open source and just, you know, treat everybody's, you know, crazy short, like it doesn't work, you know, with, with respect and just not close them, you know, and that those get really frustrating really fast. And yeah, any, anybody who's been doing this and, or even maintaining stuff like, you know, device and whatever for, I don't know how many years, you know, those have gone through the same repeated questions over and over again and kind of link people to the wiki and it's like, it's easy to get harsh with some of those responses, but yeah, people people are amazing. And that I think is probably the thing that... Because I came from Python before I got into Ruby and Python had a good community. Don't get me wrong, but there was something special about the Ruby community. Like People are so welcoming and so helpful here. I just didn't feel that even remotely the same as as I did in Ruby. So... You know, that, that I think is the big special piece of, you know, Ruby, like the mini swan philosophy and all that stuff. Like that stuff makes this community so great. So yeah, that's, you know, another thing that I feel like people talked about more back in the day and you don't hear it mentioned as much, but I remember hearing that mentioned constantly. So those things are, we're probably at another point of time where the changing of the guard, lots of Rails people have moved on to Elixir or other languages, Go and stuff. So I imagine that things are going to shift again like they have in the past. But it is it was pretty good, pretty good times though. Before we get too far from the open source and commenting and stuff, I will say that I know we've all seen them. And if you haven't, then count yourself lucky. But like that horrendous GitHub issue where things just go completely sour and people are angry and it's just it gets to a really ugly place and you kind of look at it and you're just like, holy crap. Like I guarantee you if you spend a day, two days, three days just answering GitHub issues on like Rails Core or some other popular open source project, you will never even 
think about going into an issue and just getting all pissed off at these people who are volunteering their time to like help you. It's just that, that I see things like that and it's just appalling. But I guarantee you those people also are probably not maintaining open source projects. Yeah, I, I, I totally hear you there. There's an issue that I started following. It, it's GraphQL. It wasn't, it wasn't Ruby, thankfully, but had to do with the specification. And there was one small issue that somebody had. But every, and it's about five years old. And I still get about anywhere from three to 15 very passionate, angry comments from that issue a week. So it's, it is wild how some of these things can just keep going and going and going. And, I, and sometimes I wonder if people get these emails after they've been out for a night and then, and then give their honest opinion and it just ends up in the GitHub history. But it's, yeah, we always think about the issues that are unreadable where someone copy pastes without any formatting a code output that you don't understand and they don't raise the question. But that is another side is the issues that even, you know, they get that are under threat from getting locked because they just turn into uh, something else. So yeah, I, I, it, it, it is it is a wild world out there on GitHub, and just kind of linking past Ruby's into it. Like there is no great way to know where the great discussions have happened unless you stumble upon it. Now there's used to be debates on gists. There were debates on GitHub issues years and years ago. There's one with DHH Avdigram, uh, sidekick founder. I'm trying to remember his name, Purim. Yeah, and about four or five other people that you know, and they're just talking about how some code was organized in a gist for a controller. So it's, it's, that's, you know, Twitter's a bit more organized. I mean, it's, it's horrible, but I've, I've very much enjoyed it for, if any of you post something, I generally will find out about it. So that's wonderful. But yeah, there, there's a tremendous amount happening on GitHub and it's not a very, very small part of it is code. You know, It's also a very small part of our jobs is code <laughs> that it's a, like the people said that to me when I was going through computer science in college, like, oh, you think you're just going to be like that developer that, you know, it lives in a cage and drinks energy drinks and like doesn't have to talk to people like you're wrong. It's, it's all, it's all communication. And I, I didn't believe it, but uh, it is, although I still, I still make time for the dark caves and energy drinks, but it, a large part of code, I mean, code is communication and people write code, people have to communicate. So it's interesting that a lot of people I knew going through computer science college are, they have no idea, like they think this is like their escape and they have no idea that they're signing up for one of the most communication focused jobs you can have. Yeah, I've always felt like programming is more, well, the reason I like Ruby so much is like, yeah, we have to talk to the computer and and make the computer understand, but we more importantly have to to write code so that other people can understand, you know, how this thing is supposed to work. And that's the beauty of Ruby is you're writing almost like you're writing English, you know, those little, little things make a big difference, but yeah, well, we have run out of time. So thanks for being on Nick. This has been super duper fun. Um, glad we got to do this finally. So yeah, I guess, I guess that's about it. You guys have anything else you want to mention and and Nick, if you want to mention your Twitter username and where they can find you online, uh, go ahead. Sure. Uh, Thank you so much, all of you, uh, for having me on again. I've been an avid listener of Remote Ruby. I remember when uh, a friend of mine, Brittany Martin, who hosts uh, Ruby on Rails podcast, first talked about 
your podcast coming out and we were excited. So I've been listening for a long time and just an honor to, to almost have to remember to speak sometimes because I feel like I'm just listening to a podcast when y'all were talking. But my main moniker in coding world is just Schwad, S-C-H-W-A-D. That was taken on Twitter. So Schwad4HD14 on Twitter, Schwad on GitHub, schwad.github.io is where I write some of my things and pastrubies.com. If you know, it's, it's, it is a website, but I primarily focus on when, the, when it comes out, the newsletter content. So if you just want to sign up there, any past Truby stuff, or if I put out I'm on a podcast, you'll hear about it by email as little as possible. So thanks for having me on. I will say I absolutely love and enjoy every time that we are able to do this. And I get to like put like a, an actual face and voice and human behind like the, the Twitter avatar. So if anyone out there is listening and wants to hang out, <laughs> let us know. We, I mean, I for one love to hang out and meet new people. So it's always great, especially in the times we're in. So yeah, thanks for coming on. I've been following your content as well. So it was great to actually kind of meet you, pretty much meet you, almost face-to-face. Oh yeah. Close enough. Same, now y'all are more than avatars as well. So it's great. Awesome. Well, yeah, thanks for joining us. Uh, a lot of fun to chat. This was fun for me just to like, I don't know, I just want to sit and listen to you talk about past Ruby stuff. It was a lot of fun. I will see you guys next week. Yeah. Bye. This podcast is brought to you by our friends at Linode. With 11 data centers worldwide, including their newest data center in Sydney, Australia, enterprise-grade hardware, S3-compatible storage option, and their next-generation network, Linode delivers the performance you expect at a price that you don't. Get started on Linode today by going to linode.com forward slash remote Ruby.